Um, okay, so here's my question. I do a thing. So there's 24 slides altogether. We're on number two. Um, I, and I've been asked to talk for between 30 and 40 minutes. And because I follow rules, that means I'll talk for 35. Um, here's my question. I'm going to put this slide on as the last slide as well, just in case you feel like tuning out for the middle part. Uh, so here's the question. Is it morally acceptable to permit citizens to select refugees for resettlement? And my answer uh, is under some constraints, yes. And, and I'm going to defend that in the next 21 slides. So here's the plan. It, conveniently, it turns out that uh, previous speakers that um, people in the, in the relevant class have enjoyed are people who have given an overview of the talk, so here it is. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I have no idea whether you think that this question is a question that should be asked, but in case, in case you're like, this is totally not a question, I'm going to problematize and try to explain to you why I'm asking this question in the first place. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about resettlement globally speaking, so that you can understand the sort of the specific context in which I'm raising the questions I'm raising. I'm going to talk about the private sponsorship program in Canada, just so we're all on the same page about how it operates. It has some very specific features that I want to talk about. So I'd like to describe them just to make sure we all know which features I think are the morally relevant ones. Then I'm going to talk about, uh, then, then the ethics comes in at starting in section four. And this is where I talk about what Given the sort of the context that I've described, how do we choose among refugees for resettlement in general? And then how does Canada choose? How should we choose? I will offer um, a defense of a way of choosing. Largely, in fact, I will defend the UNHCR's way of selecting, the United Nations High Commission on Refugees for selection mechanisms. But I will defend that philosophically. Then I will ask in section five, three moral questions. I'll give you two answers. At, that's because the third answer comes in section six, in which I go over some objections that you might have to the way I'm framing the questions. I'll give you answers to those, and then I will tell you what should we do, in my view. Okay, so here, uh, so um, here it is. Here's, so one, one, so should citizens be able to choose refugees, right? So here we are in a state, Canada, and we know that there's a, that refugees are going to come in, or that maybe they're going to come in. So one question you might have is this, you might just say, well, this is like, this is a dumb question you're asking, whether citizens should be involved, because actually, um, it's a duty to admit refugees, so this question of whether students should be involved, or citizens should be involved, and how they should be involved, it's not a question. It's a duty. We have a duty to admit uh, refugees, international law or ethics, depending on what background you come from. Um, but actually, I want to just, just here, just distinguish between two things. States have the duty of non-refoulement. That is to say, states have the duty to admit people, uh, asylum seekers who claim that they are facing persecution or other types of violence in their home country, to admit them for refuge. No state has a duty to resettle refugees. This is a choice that some states make. It's one of many ways in which we can treat refugees. You can admit them for resettlement. Again, I'll talk about what resettlement is specifically shortly. But that it's the resettlement dimension of this is not a duty. So that's one reason why I think that there are actually moral questions to be weighed here, because it's not a duty. This, the, the question isn't answered. Do states have to admit citizens for or refugees for resettlement? And I'm going to talk about the conditions that should apply in these kinds of cases. Um, so and then so same question, different slide, but different uh, different thing underlined. So you might just say, well, actually. Uh, for those of you who study the political theory of migration, so I'm not sure how many of you have a background in this, but you might just say, well, look, according to the political theory of migration, states is the states are the agents that admit 
people, right? It is a definition of sovereignty, right? If you if you are if you are, if you're trained in political philosophy uh, and you've read about sovereignty or territorial rights, right? You know what is a sovereign nation? It can protect itself and the interests of its citizens, and it is in charge of border control, admission, and exclusion. It is a definitional feature of state sovereignty that they admit. So you might say, well, actually, the reason that we shouldn't be talking about whether citizens should be involved in this play, in this in this kind of choice about whom to admit is because it's up to the state. That's definitional of state sovereignty. Um, I think that's wrong, as you'll see. But those are those are two reasons why you might think that the question I have is not a question. Uh, either there's a duty to admit, but I say actually we have, might have a duty to admit, but we don't have a duty to resettle. So this raises questions about what we should do in the face of requests to resettle and how we make choices about whom to resettle. And you might say that admission is a state duty, not a, not something that citizens should be involved in. And I'm going to make the case that actually there are good reasons to involve citizens in this choice. Okay, so resettlement. Um, I could put a bigger number on that. There's 17 million, all of these numbers are approximate, they change, they're going up in fact. There's probably 22 million if you include Palestinian refugees. Uh, if you prefer, there's, there used to be a, a, an earlier bullet point that said there are 65 million people who are internally displaced, uh, or displaced, et cetera, et cetera. So there's big numbers, we're talking about big numbers. 17 million refugees, maybe 22 million. Um, and that's a really big number at the risk of stating the obvious. The UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, which is sort of globally charged with managing refugee, uh, the treatment of refugees, um, in the face of this, identifies roughly in any one year one million refugees whom they believe should be prioritized for resettlement. There's many different kinds of things that could happen to refugees. They could sit in a state of temporary refuge in the country that they flee to, right? Syrians, many, many Syrians are in Turkey, many of whom are waiting, hoping for their country to get uh, back on track so that they can return home, right? So they're just in a, con I mean, they're, they're, they're in a, a state, we might say, of temporary refuge. Um, you might also say uh, there's a second solution, which is that they might actually just uh, refugees might cross borders from Syria into Turkey and hope that they are locally integrated into Turkey. Or you might say that um, Ugandan people who are gay and in Uganda might flee Uganda into Kenya and hope, against hope, as it happens, that they might be locally integrated into Kenyan society. But uh, so those are the uh, those are the preferred solutions, right? The solution that that that's, that individuals will flee into a state of refuge and wait it out until they can go home or that they will be locally integrated into the country into which they first pass, right? So those are the preferred options. The UNHCR says of the, of the 17 million refugees, people outside of their borders, their state's borders, one million of them are people who will find it especially problematic either to return home or to be integrated where they are. And so the UNHCR recommends them for resettlement to third countries. These are countries like Canada, like Australia, uh, like the United States up until not the United States, etc. Uh, in fact, there are 37 right now officially designated resettlement countries, a funny number because Hungary is included in that list and you may be skeptical of that. Nevertheless, some countries participate in resettlement. That is to say we go or we invite people who are in countries of refuge to come to Canada to start their lives all over again as Canadian citizens with the full rights and responsibilities of Canadian citizens. So there's one million people on the list. 
In 2016, about 140,000 of those people actually found resettlement spots. That is to say, 850,000 people were still on that list. More were added. And depending on how you count the numbers, there's all kinds of ways of counting the numbers. Of that list of approximately 100,000, 150,000 who are resettled every year, on average of 27,000 come to Canada in any one year. Right? So we're starting, the whole point of this, right? 65 million, 17 million, 1 million, 150,000 to 27,000, right? So we are talking about selection that is going along all kinds of moments at which refugees are being selected out of resettlement opportunities. This is a highly scarce resource that we are talking about. Okay, fine. Okay, that's background. In Canada, just so that, again, we're all on the same page. If you are a refugee in need of resettlement, you can come into Canada. I'm simplifying. Experts in refugees, don't roll your eyes at me. There's broadly two ways in which you can come into Canada. One is a government-assisted refugee. This just means the government, more or less, calls up the UNHCR, says, send us some people. And they come to Canada. They come with the full rights and, citizen, rights and responsibilities. Um, with Canadian citizenship, They're, they work with settlement agencies to get on with their lives in Canada. Another way that you can come in is as a privately sponsored refugee. This means that Canadian citizens have identified you for resettlement to Canada, a particular person, you in particular, and they have committed in some way to supporting your resettlement in Canada. The private, spo oh, well, this is important, the private sponsorship of refugees program is more or less footnotes. There's footnotes to all of these comments. I'm happy to elaborate the footnotes in discussion. The uh, more or less, um, the private sponsorship program is unique in Canada. There's aspects of it which are present in other refugee admission systems. But the Canadian government, in collaboration with several other entities, including the University of Ottawa Law School, is going abroad trying to encourage other countries to adopt contextually appropriate sponsorship models, right? Models that would allow citizens in other countries to specially select individual people, individual refugees for resettlement in their country. It's one possible solution, albeit small, to the refugee crisis. Maybe individual citizens want to take on the responsibility for specific refugees. Given the, the, the sheer number of people in need of spaces, maybe this is a good way forward. And it is because of this press, this global press, to encourage other countries to adopt a program like this that I think as ethicists, such as we are, uh, it's important to think about the moral questions that, that come about when you start to involve citizens in the selection process. Uh, just for context, about half of uh, refugees to Canada have been admitted through private sponsorship regimes since 1978. Later, I will tell you why I keep on saying 1978. Okay, so here, private sponsorship has two things, right? So if you want to privately sponsor a refugee, what you need to do is get into get to a group. All groups that sponsor refugees in Canada have a minimum of five people. Footnote, I can tell you more about how that happens. But groups of Canadians at a very minimum of five get together and they take financial and emotional responsibility for resettling a refugee. And if they do that, they raise the money and they agree to commit to the emotional uh, and resettlement support then they can name the refugee that they want. They can just say, I'd like that guy, or she looks nice, 
You can choose a vote on any criteria you want. Maybe you're a member of a Catholic organization and you want to help Catholics. Maybe you're a member of a Jewish organization and you want to help Jews. Maybe you're a member of an LGBTQ organization and you want to help LGBTQ persons in peril. Whatever. Whatever reason you want. Maybe your brother is in need of refugee status. You can help your brother. Right? So you can choose along using any criteria you'd like if you raise the money and are willing to commit to that refugee. The commitment itself is for one year at public assistance rates. It's actually more generous than public assistance rates in Canada, at least in Ontario. But roughly, again, there's some massaging here, but roughly one person costs $13,000, so, which is a separate kind of moral question, but just mean, that just sort of means that if you want to save a life, it costs you $13,000, which in the scale of uh, how to have a difference in the world, it's actually quite, it's actually quite inexpensive to help somebody uh, start their lives again. But anyway, so if you're willing to do the resettlement work for one year, here's the work. You have to meet refugees at the airport. If they arrive at Ottawa, this is really great. I don't know if you've been in the Ottawa airport. You must have been at the Ottawa airport, friend who used to work for Shopify. But the Ottawa airport's got an escalator, which comes down to a escalator, and the whole group who's welcoming starts to cheer before they even get there, and everybody cries because it's a massively important moment for everybody. And usually there's balloons and flowers involved, and then they come to a fountain, and then there's the mandatory picture in front of the Ottawa airport fountain. It's great. Okay? So you have to meet them at the airport. You've got to find them accommodation somewhere to live. You have to find them health care, language classes, education, networks, social networks, employment advice. I'm part of one of these groups. Yesterday's request from our newly arrived newcomer was uh, for yogurt and chia seeds, apparently a solution for constipation. So, you know, you can do all kinds of things. Refugee integration work has a, uh, a, a range of, um, you do a range of things. Okay? So that's what it looks like. Okay, and this is key. The program was formally instantiated in 1978. When it was instantiated, the government committed explicitly to something that called the principle of additionality. This is to say, the government told Canadian citizens at that time that it was going to make a decision on its own about how many refugees it wanted to admit. And if Canadians, people like us, I don't know, maybe people like you, thought that number was too small or you wanted to do more because refugees and refugee support was your thing, you could do more. It would be an addition, right? So if you are motivated by questions of global justice or duties to refugees, you as a private citizen were given a vehicle through which you could increase the total number of refugees that Canada admitted, which is to say the total number of refugees that find permanent solutions to the struggles they face. Okay? That's is very important, and I will come back to this principle uh, throughout the rest of the talk repeatedly. It's called the principle of additionality. So in the, at its inception, the idea was that Canadian citizens were bringing in people additional to the Canadian quota. Okay. For those of you who are political theorists, I'm just going to say the exact same thing using jargon. Uh, do you like jargon? You've never said anything about whether you like jargon. But in political theoretic jargon, the way you would construct this problem is you would say, political philosophers say, look, you look globally. Here's how many refugees there are. Here's the kinds of needs they have. Here's the kinds of capacities that countries have to absorb or support refugees, either by sending money or indeed by absorbing them into their population. We can identify, we can have a complicated algorithm, any quantitative types in the room, an algorithm which will determine each country's fair share of refugee 
admissions, and other types of support, right? So you just, there's an algorithm, you punch in all the information, you get a number, it says Canada, you gotta take in 27,000 refugees, plus you have to send, uh, you know, $7 million to this refugee camp and $12 million to that refugee camp, right? You could imagine this happening, right? It's, it's hard, like you could imagine this kind of work. So if you could do this for real, you would have an account of what Canada's fair share is. So I also treat the principle of additionality as anything in addition to whatever is the predetermined fair share for Canada. So this algorithm, the magic algorithm in the sky, produces an answer to what Canada is required to do as a matter of justice for refugees, and then can, can any Canadians who think, actually, we want to do more, can do that. That's also another way of conceiving the principle of additionality. Marcus didn't like the first picture, he's taking another one. So, um, okay, Does that, so that's, that makes sense. Okay, two different ways of conceiving the same thing. This means, do you like more jargon? This means that if we have identified Canada's fair share, any Canadians who are doing more than their fair share are behaving in a supererogatory way, if you like that language. If you don't like that language, just forget I said that. Okay, so now we're, now, now we're, getting, into the, we're getting into the moral kinds of questions. And this, is this talk is slightly more complicated because weirdly the, uh, the this laptop does not show my slides, so that's why I'm looking to see what you are also looking at. Okay, so so can you see that this is an extremely difficult moral question, right? We have one million, we started with 17 million, maybe we started with 22, or maybe we started with 65 million people, but we've got one million people on the UNHCR list, and we know that something like 27,000 are going to come to Canada, half of whom are gonna be private sponsors. What do we think about those moves? The moves which put, in particular in this case, people on the UNHCR list to be designated as priority cases for resettlement. Well, uh, the UNHCR, and I think this is broadly right, although I'm happy to say more about it, use a variety of vulnerability factors which are appropriate to prioritize. So one thing you might say is, well, look, We've got 17 million people on the list of refugees, people with certificates or cards that say we are, they are officially refugees. What do we do? Well, we can say who among them is the most vulnerable along some account of what vulnerability is and prioritize them. I'm gonna say more about this, but how the UNHCR decides this in the next slide. So you might just say you've got a list of 17 million people and we're just, gonna, we're just gonna rank them according to vulnerability. And then the top one million are selected for a priority list according to resettlement. So that any country that is willing to resettle refugees has to take from that list, right? You know, so when Canada calls up and says, hey, we'll take some refugees, they get people from that list. That's one option. Or you could have a threshold definition of what a refugee is, which is you could just say, well, look, the UNHCR designates some people as refugee according to to certain criteria that it possesses, any person on that list is equally worthy of resettlement, right? So maybe maybe you, maybe having determined that, you pick out of a hat, right? You just engage in a lottery system for choosing who will be admitted. So the UNHCR prioritizes vulnerability factors, which uh, is to say that they, they do two things broadly. They say which people that we have on this list of 17 million are most vulnerable in their country of refuge, the country that they've crossed into, 
and who will be, remain most vulnerable if they are required to return or stay where they are. Right? So there's two factors. To what extent are they vulnerable in the country of refuge that they found? Imagine uh, queer Ugandans in uh, the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. Right? So they face extreme vulnerability if they have to return to Uganda because Uganda criminalizes homosexual activity quite aggressively. But actually, it's not so great to be gay in Kakuma either. Right? So you might say, well, we should prioritize people who have vulnerability, who demonstrate vulnerability in both of these two kinds of cases. Right? And that is more or less what the UNHCR does. It says that people who face extreme vulnerability both in their countries of refuge and their countries of origin, those are the people who should get onto the list. They are, as I've set up here, uh, single women with children. For a variety of reasons, women uh, remain highly vulnerable in countries which are refugee-producing refugee and receiving countries. Uh, the elderly, medically vulnerable, people who have significant medical needs who can no longer get them met once they've arrived in an, either in an urban refugee setting or in a refugee camp. Um, LGBTQ persons and so on, right? So once we've, once we've sort of uh, collected all these, these vulnerability factors in country of refuge and, and, and country of origin, we can have a list of roughly one million people who should be designated as high priority according to their vulnerability for resettlement. This is important just for going forward. I'm gonna refer to people who are the, in that list of one million people on the list and people who are not off list. So they're still refugees, they still meet the, the, the threshold for refugee status, but I'm just gonna call them for ease of uh, speaking off-list refugees. Okay, so um, one, here's my definition of vulnerability, I'm happy to talk about it again. One is vulnerable to the extent that one cannot exercise agency over the conditions under which one's life is led. Obviously people, for those of you who have worked in vulnerability studies, everybody's vulnerable, right? You could go walk right out the door and get hit by a car, and because you aren't wearing your body casing today, that would be quite painful, if not fatal, right? So everybody's vulnerable. And you're vulnerable because you know you fall in love with somebody and they don't love you back. So then your, your feelings are hurt and you're very sad, right? You're vulnerable to that. So, but what I mean, I don't mean to emphasize those types of vulnerabilities, rather the, vulner, the, the vulnerabilities that face you as an individual when you're trying to shape the conditions of your lives, right? You have a lot of control in Canada over those. Can you go to university or not? Can you study or not? Can you have a job or not? These are choices that you can make. You can shape the conditions. You can't control them, but you can shape them. To the extent that you cannot shape them, according to my account of it, you are vulnerable. Okay? Um, I can say more about this, but I'm gonna go move to the next section. My thought is that actually uh, agency is the right thing to focus on, which is to say that we should be concerned about maximizing agency of individuals and corresponding that the people who are highly vulnerable have the least agency and that it is uh, justifiably the right criterion to prioritize for resettlement purposes. Okay, three more questions. One, there's the first question. Canadians usually think this is the answer to this is obvious, but let's not think it's obvious. Let's at least give reasons. Should citizens be permitted to sponsor? I'll say yes. And if so, should citizens be permitted to name refugees for admission? I'll take that guy. I'm gonna say yes. And should citizens be restricted to on-list refugees? I'm gonna say yes to that as well. And you may think that's intention with number two. Because if I think that Canadians should be able to say, I'll take that guy, you might think that's intention, in particular if that guy is not on-list. And I'm gonna offer a way through that tension. If you didn't see what the tension was, I'll come back to it. 
Okay, so uh, two reasons. Should citizens be allowed to sponsor? I, sure, why not? I mean, that's, that's basically my answer. Uh, but because we're philosophers, ethicists, moralists, which, whichever thing you self-conceive as, thoughtful people, um, let me say more. One, people want to. There's clearly a desire to do this. Do you remember the, um, were you paying attention to the exodus of Syrians as they moved, some of them moved into Germany? Remember there were those, uh, you, you know, Facebook, Instagram, viral images, tweets, etc., of clapping Germans? as Syrian refugees arrived in Germany to safety, they were, they were really excited about it, right? Those people are not gone. They're not in uh, power, but they're not gone, right? People want to, people want to help refugees. People are, many, many, many people are really um, exercised about the plight of refugees and the challenges they face, so people want to. That's a reason. The fact that somebody wants to do something if it doesn't harm other people is a reason to let them do it. And there's great community benefits to letting them do so, right? Because if you let Canadians, groups of five at a very minimum, support refugees, that's five people who get to know a refugee, learn about their um, challenges that they face in, in home countries and in countries of origin. It makes them more receptive to refugees in general. So if you're a type, you may not be, I haven't um, assessed your sort of think, thinking about this, uh, but if you're somebody who generally thinks that offering support to refugees is a good, then the communal benefits that come from having larger and larger numbers of Canadians or citizens interact with refugees specifically so that they gain an understanding of the challenges, that's a good thing, right? It made, in the Canadian case, the, the fact that so many Canadians participated in welcoming and resettling Syrians made us robust against, quite robust against the anti-refugee sentiment that hit other countries that let in large numbers of refugees. Right? And I think that there's a lot of empirical evidence that suggests that's true. I'm happy to talk about it more. Okay. Should they be permitted to name? Well, I think so. Yeah, sure. I think, that's the, I think in, as a general starting point, um, Canadian citizens or citizens should be permitted to name. Uh, one reason is that might be why the program is so successful in the first place in Canada, right? 350, 400,000 people admitted to Canada under this scheme. And it might just be because the vast majority of people who know refugees are people who have been close to refugee situations themselves, right? Syrians in Canada were among the first to mobilize to support Syrians who were forced to flee Syria in uh, you know, 2010, 11, 12, 13, etc. right? So it might just be that the set of people who are motivated to respond to refugee flights are people with connections. So we should let them operate on those connections. And so what it actually turns out, and there's a whole moral uh, background here, which I'm happy to say more about, but it might just be that the way you get people to do the hard work of refugee integration, refugee integration is really hard, for those of you who participated in it, it's not a simple thing. Um, and for those of you who are political theorists of refugees, you will know that the vast, vast, vast majority of people working in this field actually think that the integration of refugees or the duties to refugees stop when you've let them in the country, but that's not true because you can't just let somebody in the country and say, welcome to Canada, have a nice life, right? You gotta, you gotta like, show them where the bank is, what a bank looks like, uh, what a credit card is because many people are coming from countries that have never used a credit card, right? There's all kinds of things. Justice to refugees in resettlement is not just admission. So it's hard work. So maybe the reason that citizens want to do the work is not actually because they care about refugees. They're not do-gooders like us. They actually care about a particular person. And so the reason that they're interested in doing this very difficult work is because they have a connection to that person. I think we should protect that. I don't think we should abandon that. 
And then you might say, now you might say again, okay, but if you're actually letting people choose refugees for admission, aren't you still running into this problem that the vast majority of refugees are not actually on the list? They're not people who are being selected for or prioritized for resettlement because they are vulnerable. Stay tuned. Okay, but that's, so just stay tuned. That's the general view. The general view is people should be allowed to, sponsor citizens should be engaged in sponsorship because they want to, and they should be allowed to choose because that's essential to the motivational work. It's essential to motivate them to do the hard work of refugee integration for one year. Well, okay, so you might have objections. Remember the principle of additionality? I'm now coming back to that. Okay, one, if additionality is respected, so the government says we're going to admit X numbers of people, so everything that citizens do is additional to that, citizens should be, you might just say, permitted to choose whomever they want. They should not be restricted to my list, the UNHCR list. Right? Canada's duty of justice is met. Citizens' actions are therefore supererogatory. So I think, well, you know, uh, okay, Canada's done its job. I still think that we should require any Canadians, barring exceptions, so I'm going to start to fill in the exceptions, unless they have plausible and persuasive reasons to be accepted from this, should be required to choose from the list. I think the list is defensible. Okay? I can say more. Number two. Well, what if, what if you impose these constraints and then Canadians don't come forward? Because actually what Canadians want is that refugee, not refugees. They want that guy and his partner and their children, right? He doesn't, you don't want anybody. They don't want, they just want a particular person. And I said, well, actually, I think, I think this is a real worry. Um, and I can, again, I can say more, but I think we should worry that Canadians, if they're not allowed to name specific refugees, will not sponsor. The history of the Canadian program is exactly this, that something like, depending on how you count it, something like 70, between 75% and 90% of people who are privately sponsored are fa friends or families, members of people already in Canada, right? So the connection, the personal connection is strong. So this is a worrying objection. It suggests that if I require people to choose on the list, Actually, what's going to happen is we're not going to let in any refugees. That's going to be bad. So I think that's right. But I don't think that that's a reason to abandon um, abandon the list, the requirement that Canadians choose on the list. I think it's going to be a reason to allow Canadians to make exception cases. More on that. Objection two. Actually, Canadian citizens should be able to name anyone, especially if additionality isn't re respected, because... Citizens are then, in that case, compensating for state failures, right? So Canada is like Canada. You know, I mean, you know, this is uh, more uh, less hypothetical than I would like. And a government is elected. It says, uh, actually, we're not into refugees. You know, Donald Trump. He's kind of he's a cool guy, and so we're going to follow that route and not admit refugees. Uh, and then, so Canadian citizens, maybe some of you are in this room, are like, oh, that's bad. Let us sponsor as many people as we can. We can compensate for Canadian state failure, right? And so we should be allowed, because we're compensating for state failure, we should be allowed to bring in anybody we want, right? The situation is desperate. We let in anybody we want. I'm, I'm not so persuaded by this objection, though maybe some of you want to make it uh, stronger. But I think citizens and states are in it together, right? I don't buy the, and again, this is a philosophical discussion, but I don't buy the distinction between state and citizens. I think as citizens, we simply are the state, right? So if the Canadian state makes a choice, it's not that citizens make up for it, it's that that's us failing. And so I think 
we nevertheless have the requirement that we should be committed to the list just as we were in the case where additionality was respected. Number three. Citizens shouldn't be able to name in the first place because people choose for bad reasons, right? People are leading up to the history of this program is in the post-World War II period. In the post-World War II period, Mennonites and Jewish organizations got together to talk about Jewish organizations. Jewish organizations petitioned the government to say, we should be permitted to admit as refugees displaced persons from displaced persons camp in World War II. And the government found that quite compelling. There were a lot of displaced persons at that time. And it just said to the Jewish organizations, Mennonite organizations did the same, look, you want to pay for it, bring them in. Right? So that's what Jewish organizations did. Now, maybe you think that's, that's good, that was a good, it is a good, but maybe you think that selecting for immigration, for admission based on religious criteria is generally something that is bad. We don't like it when the government says we'll only take Christians or we'll only take Muslims, or we won't take Muslims, or we won't take people who are Chinese or Japanese, right? We get anxious about those kinds of racial and cultural um, selection criteria, even though that's the history of the Canadian program. So we might say, Canadians just shouldn't be allowed to choose because what we know about Canadians is that they're going to go and they're going to choose fellow ethnic members, fellow cultural members, they're going to be discriminatory against whoever, they're going to be discriminate in favor of whoever. Those are bad reasons. The state can't do that in its immigration policies, so citizens too should not be allowed to do those in their when they make selections, right? If, we, if the Canadian state said, as it did um, about 100 years ago, uh, Asians are excluded, we would think that's bad. So a private citizen who says, we will not, I don't want to support an Asian refugee, we would think that's bad, by analogy. And, okay, so I'll just say that. But, you might say, look, Canadians do lots of charity work, and in their charitable work, we let them make these choices, right? If, if Jewish organizations want to co contribute all of their, or Jewish people want to contribute their philanthropic work to Jewish organizations, fine, right? If there's a Korean church, fine. They can, they can have Korean celebrations, welcome Korean people. They can't exclude people from coming to celebrate. But right, if that's what people want to do, give to support uh, Korean Canadians, no problem. As, if, as long as it's a matter of charity, nobody, people don't mind these kinds of ethnic cultural distinctions. To which I say, private sponsorship is not private. It's not, I think it is incorrect to conceive it as charitable. It's not char charity. What it is, is partnering with the government to bring in people who will be Canadian. And what matters is that we, when we support refugees for resettlement, we give them the rights and privileges of Canadians and we have to teach them what that means. That's a public job. It's not private. So I don't think the analogy or the worry about charity holds. So what should we do? Okay, that was a lot, but here's what we should do. We should have a list of people who are prioritized according to the vulnerability criteria. We should constrain people to that list. So Marcus says, I want to help um, refugees, but I don't know any refugees. Who should I choose? And the Canadian government says, hey, look, here's a list. Here's a list of highly vulnerable individuals. And Marcus, chooses, Marcus and his buddies choose that person or that family who are highly vulnerable. But then somebody comes along and says, I would like a specific person. Then we need, number two, an exemption procedure, an exception clause, which says there are reasons, plausible reasons, why Canadians should be permitted to move away from the list. These are, for example, family, right? So if somebody can make a plausible case that their own family member is in danger, 
that's a reason to prioritize that individual. Or, and this is the second one, and then I will conclude, it might be the case that the priority list, which identifies vulnerable persons, doesn't capture the whole set of vulnerable persons, right? There was a time when LGBTQ persons were not considered vulnerable, right? But what happened? LGBT organizations, civil society organizations, petitioned the government to include them and the UNHCR to include this population as vulnerable. And we have reason to believe that that will happen again, that Canadian citizens might, in advance of the UNHCR or the Canadian government, recognize that particular populations are vulnerable and be able to make the case that actually a particular group or individual meets those vulnerability criteria. So my thought is that Canadians should be permitted to sponsor, they should be restricted to the list, unless they can make the case that certain kinds of people meet exemption criteria that would allow them to go off list. So my conclusion, I told you I'd put this into slide number 24, it might be 23, I might have taken one out. Number 23 or four, is it morally acceptable to permit citizens to select refugees for resettlement? And my answer is, under some constraints, yes. 